Thanks for checking out this episode. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with my plastic surgeon, Dr. Michael Gimbel. We talked about the different options for plastic surgery or reconstruction. We talked about the pros and cons of each of those options. We talked about uh, what to look for when researching a plastic surgeon. I think you're going to find this episode to be really informative and valuable. Let's take a listen. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. So I'm here with Dr. Michael Gimbel. He is the assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Plastic Surgery. He currently works at McGee Women's Hospital. And uh Dr. Gimbel has a focus on general plastic surgery, um, specifically more so with a focus on breast surgery. Um, so he works with patients who might be coming in to have breast reconstruction after breast cancer treatment, breast reduction, and then aesthetic breast surgery. So welcome, Dr. Gimbel. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you being here, and we appreciate you being here by phone, um, because he is in the Pittsburgh area, and I actually know Dr. Gimbel. He was my plastic surgeon when I was going through my treatment, so um, I was in very, very good hands with him. Um, so we're going to go ahead and dive right in um, and talk a little bit about plastic surgery and um, just a number of different topics related to it. So one of the things that I had seen on the website is you, it specifically references that there are times where people come into your office by choice, but many others arrive by necessity. And so when you talk about arriving by necessity, would you say that a majority of your patients are breast cancer survivors coming for reconstruction? Yeah, I would say that the majority of my patients are breast cancer, uh, either active patients or survivors. Uh, sometimes they come to my office uh, anticipating um, surgery to rid themselves of breast cancer and uh, are learning about breast reconstruction to see if they're a candidate for reconstruction at the same time as their mastectomy or as their lumpectomy uh, or whether uh, they would be a better candidate to have their reconstruction done at a later date in delayed fashion after all their treatment's done. So sometimes they're already survivors and sometimes they are future survivors. Okay. Okay. So what are some of the different options for reconstruction? So I'm going to just be very honest and say that I didn't even think about reconstruction for lumpectomy. So this is, this is a new conversation for me. So what are some of the different options well, uh, the most common, uh, what we usually think about with regards to breast reconstruction is after mastectomy. And uh, there are two main options uh, for reconstruction. Uh, one involves only implants. The other involves only one's own tissue, and that's called autologous reconstruction. And then there's an in-between group uh, where it involves both one's own tissue as well as implants. And so not everybody is a candidate for everything, 
uh, and some people are candidates for all these options. And so what we talk about at the, at the first consultation, it, one of the things we talk about is what, uh, what is somebody a candidate for uh, and what would be in their best interest. And, and uh-huh, go ahead. So how do you decide what somebody is a good candidate for or what would be in their best interest? What are some of the things that you kind of assess to determine that? Exactly. And there's a lot of things. So one of them, one of the most important things is uh, what a woman wants. So a lot of times people will have uh, done some of their own research ahead of time and have an idea of what they want. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be a good candidate for what they want. Uh, Sometimes they are, often they are, but sometimes they're not. And so we go through uh, first, uh, you know, what they are thinking. Um, And then we talk about, you know, what the different options are and uh, why one method might be a good one for them and why one method might not be a good one for them. And sometimes if, if, uh, if a woman is a candidate for multiple different options, uh, it comes down to, um, how they want to proceed, what kind of strategy they want to uh, um, proceed by because there are some advantages and disadvantages to implant-based reconstruction and there are some advantages and disadvantages to autologous tissue reconstruction and um, those advantages and disadvantages have different weights in different people because everybody's different. Sometimes uh, something that's considered a big disadvantage to one person would not be considered a big disadvantage to another person. So it becomes very you know, personal as to what, what someone chooses. Well, and I, I think that's great um, in terms of, you know, as, as you were talking, I kept thinking, you know, wow, this is really individualized to the person and not just kind of a cookie cutter approach. And sometimes I, f- I think that, you know, some, when we're kind of in that process that journey uh sometimes we can have those feelings of you know well this is what everybody does so i like to really hear that you know it truly is an individual um approach to it rather than you know this is this is the only thing that we have to offer you (laughs) and i realize that you know sometimes there might be that situation just because of the you know whether they're a good candidate for one or um, maybe only two of them, just for various reasons or personal reasons as well. So, um, so you did talk, you touched a little bit in terms of the uh, benefits and um, you know some pros and cons, if you will, in terms of the different types of reconstruction. So, can you touch on some of the pros and cons uh, for each of those different types of reconstruction? Absolutely. So why don't we start with the most common type of reconstruction, which is implant-based reconstruction. And so uh, there are, you know, breast reconstruction has gotten very complicated in the last 15 years. There are many different approaches to each of these options of reconstruction. And implant-based reconstruction has really um, uh, branched into a lot of different methods. So there is the standard approach that has been uh, tried and true for uh, several decades, and that is a staged procedure where a tissue expander, which is just a balloon, um, is placed uh, underneath the pectoralis muscle after mastectomy, and, uh, and then the incision is closed, and then over the course of several months, that tissue expander is inflated um, in a clinic just using a needle. It usually doesn't hurt because that skin overlying where that tissue expander is placed is pretty numb. And over the course of several months, it's inflated, and then um, 
at a later date, it is removed in the operating room and an implant is placed. And that's the standard way. Uh, however, in the last 15 years or so, other methods have become more and more popular using materials such as acellular dermal matrix, uh, which is a material that's used on the inside to, to um, lessen some of the tightness on the muscle and, and uh, improve the shape of the reconstruction. And in the last several years, uh, use of what's called prepectoral, which is placing the implant in front of the muscle, so the muscle is not even uh, elevated. Um, and there's and there's different nuances to each of these things. Um, the advantage of implant-based reconstruction is that implants come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, and so they come off the shelf, and we can uh, select one that's appropriate for any given patient uh, for the most part. The surgeries are relatively short. The recovery is relatively short on the matter of a couple of weeks for the initial recovery. But the, the real recovery does go on for a few months as uh, we're, we're trying to feel normal again. Um, the disadvantage of implants are that they're implants. So they're man-made objects. And just like all man-made objects, uh, they will not last forever. And um, when I say they won't last forever, they, they can develop a leak, which is what most people think about when something, you know, if an implant's not going to last forever. What is the typical problems. time frame for an implant to last? I'm sure it's very individualized, um, different factors take, for different people. Sure. When you take all the different possible problems that can develop with an implant, leak or scarring that makes it too tight or rippling that becomes visible and unwanted uh, or malposition when it shifts from one side to another, uh, all of these things basically require the same treatment, and that is removal and replacement and revision of the pocket that that implant sits in. Um, and the risk of developing one of those things and the risk of either desiring or needing another operation in the first 10 years after implant-based reconstruction is about 50%. So that's the biggest disadvantage. That's, that's a pretty high number. Yeah. Now, that revision, that surgery, is not a big surgery. It's usually same-day surgery, in and out same day, usually no drains, but it's surgery nonetheless, and there is a recovery associated with it. So with the, you mentioned drains, <laughs> so I'm going to hop on that real quick. Um, in terms of the, any of the surgeries, do, do, would somebody always have the drains when it's that kind of initial surgery um, with the, you know, whether it's their, it's the implants, the, their own tissue, if it's a combination of both, would there always be drains involved in that or? Yeah, they're pretty much the first operation generally does involve drains and you're right. Most people don't like drains. Drains are <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, and, uh, as much as we can, we would like to not use them. However, sometimes they're a necessary evil. And the reason that we use drains is simple. Um, when we're, when we are creating, uh, pockets and space in the body, uh, that space is an unnatural space. You're not, your body didn't have it before. And um, the body tends to fill space with fluid. And if that fluid kind of collects around a foreign body, or even if the fluid just kind of collects in that space, um, it can be uncomfortable and it can get infected. And so we try to um, drain that fluid to the extent that uh, until it gets down to such a little amount that's produced that the body can absorb it on its own. And that usually takes uh, a week or two after surgery to have a, a drain in place. But that's the reason we do it. And pretty much uh, anyone that has their initial reconstruction 
uh, needs a drain. Just like even if you're not having a reconstruction and you're having a mastectomy, um, that's a big space. And so most people would put a drain in in order to prevent a fluid collection. Okay. So you brought up infection and I know we've kind of veered a little bit um, away from the initial question that I had asked. But um, so in terms of you know, trying to avoid the infection, would you say that it really significantly minimizes the chances for um, the infection? Like how many people do you typically see that come back because they've had an infection from, um, you know, just the fluid collecting? So with the implant-based reconstruction, uh, the infection rate is, uh, is about 10 to 15%, which is not small. Mm-hmm. Uh, Typically, those infections can be treated without further surgery, but when you have an implant or a foreign body in place, um, it's sometimes hard to treat an infection. So the failure rate, in other words, having an infection that requires removal of that implant, is somewhere in the 3% to 6% range. Um, With regards to how many of these fluid collections get infected, I don't think I have a number for that. But fluid collections, uh, even without infection, can... can, degrade the reconstruction. It can uh, prevent the shape from uh, taking the shape that you want, uh, and it can make a pocket too tight so that it doesn't uh, correctly house the implant that's there. So there's different reasons to try and minimize that fluid. Okay. So are there any other disadvantages um, to having the implant-based reconstruction? Well, I'd say those are, that's the main, those are the main reasons that... Uh, the main disadvantage, uh, but there are some less uh, firm disadvantages, and, and some people just don't like the idea of having a foreign body, regardless of um, data or anything else. You know, they they remember that there is a scare in the '90s about uh, silicon gel implants, uh, and they worry. They just worry, uh, understandably, that it's a foreign body, and they don't want a foreign body inside of their body. And so, some people just hear the word implant, and they they run the other direction. And that those are people sometimes that choose to undergo uh, autologous reconstruction. Okay, and so you know, I remember the whole '90s scare, and I think recently I've been kind of hearing some things coming back in in terms of safety regarding implants. Um, so I don't know if it's kind of cycling back through at this point in time, uh, but are they, what would you say in terms of the safety of implants? So I know that there are both silicone and saline. Is one better than the other or are they both, um, you know, pretty equivalent in terms of safety? What would you say yeah. in terms of that? So you're right. There are two main kinds of uh, implants. Uh, they both have the same shell. The shell uh, is made out of silicone. But one type of implant is filled with saline solution, salt water, and the other type of implant is filled with a silicon gel, like a, um, a very soft and pliable kind of gel. And the scare in the 90s had to do with silicon gel implants where people uh, thought that maybe it was causing uh, problems like autoimmune disease or lupus or uh, cancer or uh, many, many other things were attributed to the silicon gel implants. However, they were taken off the market for about 15 years and studied, and no association was found between silicon gel implants and any of these uh, diseases that uh, people thought it might be causing. And that's why they came back on the market. The concern that has arisen the last uh, couple or few years with regards to implants is something called ALCL, um, which uh, is a type of lymphoma that can develop around a very specific kind of implant. 
and that is a textured implant. So I talked about the shell of the implant a second ago. Shells or the, or the covering of the implant can be either smooth uh, or they can be textured uh, so that they're a little bit rough. Rough shells have the purpose of them is so that the implant doesn't rotate in the pocket, and they're typically used for implants that, are, that have a shape to them, like a teardrop, as opposed to, as opposed to just a round one. If a round implant rotates, it doesn't matter. If a teardrop-shaped implant rotates, yeah. well, then you can have the full side up and the small side down, and it doesn't look like a breast, right. which is why they're textured. So this ALCL has been associated with textured implants uh, to the tune of somewhere in the range of 1 in 1,000 uh, women to 1 in 30,000. And the reason it's such a huge range is because it's such a rare uh, disease. And so uh, there's only been approximately 500 or so cases of this worldwide. And so uh, over the course of many, many, many years. And so it's very hard to get a hold of what the incidence truly is. And so that's why we have such a, a range. But it's very, very uncommon. Uh, however, because um, this association uh, has been made between textured implants and ALCL, um, many, uh, sort of, the FDA has not recommended that these implants be uh, taken off the market yet. Uh, and the FDA does not recommend that if you have this type of implant in place that you have it removed. However, many surgeons have discontinued using uh, textured implants because of the risk of that. And in my practice, I've discontinued using uh, textured implants um, about a, a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah, I, it's just been recent where I've seen, you know, that kind of coming back around and I didn't exactly have all of the details. So I think that that's um, super informative for people who might be considering that teardrop um, implant and just knowing that, you know, there may potentially be a risk for them. So, okay. Um, let's talk about then using one's own tissue for sure. reconstruction. So it's kind of the opposite of implants. So um, instead of uh, getting this device that comes off the shelf out of a box and comes in lots of different shapes and sizes, instead now we're getting the volume to reconstruct the breast from your own body. And the most common place that people have uh, enough fat to donate to the cause is the abdomen. And so um, the abdominal donor site is the most common uh, location that we borrow tissue from to recreate a breast. It can't just be tissue from here and there and take a little bit here and a little bit from there because it has to be removed in a certain way with appropriate anatomy and blood vessels in order to, to bring the tissue up as one block of tissue and to shape it into the shape of a breast and to connect it to new, new blood vessels in the chest. Uh, and so the, the abdomen has a very um, successful history in that the anatomy is... Uh, conducive to using it because that's where a lot of people, a lot of women and men store their fat. Um, it has very predictable anatomy with regards to the blood vessels. Uh, and, um, and we have a very large experience using that tissue at this point. So uh, re uh, trainees going through programs learn how to do this operation and training. You no longer need uh, very specialized training to learn how to do this. There there are different ways to uh, do it. Sometimes uh, you just transfer the tissue up uh, without disconnecting blood vessels and reconnecting them, and that's called a pedicle tram, and that requires uh, sacrificing the abdominal muscle on the side that uh, you're borrowing the tissue from. And if you're doing both breasts, then you sacrifice both abdominal muscles. Um, we have refined that procedure 
uh, to minimize how much uh, trauma the muscles undergo. So instead of taking these muscles and doing a pedicle trim, a more typical operation these days uh, employs the uh, the uh, expertise of microsurgery. So microsurgery means that we take the same tissue from the abdomen along with blood vessels, but we disturb the muscle very little, if at all. And we bring that tissue up to the chest and we reconnect blood vessels uh, that used to be in the abdomen up to blood vessels in the chest. And that reestablishes blood supply and allows that tissue to come back to life. And then we shape it into the shape of a breast uh, and we place drains. <laughs> <laughs> Those darn drains. That's fascinating. Uh, and then where we, where we borrow the tissue from in the abdomen, um, I think if everyone kind of sits in the chair and they pinch their stomach, they can feel a lot of uh, extra skin there. And so what we do is we, we flex the table so that it bends at the waist so people are in, in more of a beach chair position. And we use the extra laxity of their abdominal skin and tissue and are able to close it um, down as a, instead of having, you know, a, a hole where the donor side is, we close it as a line, kind of like a tummy tuck. Interesting. That's fascinating. So if somebody is not a candidate for using the abdominal muscles, um, I was one of those, where else would you take tissue from? Right. So sometimes people don't have enough tissue in their abdomen to use to make a breast. And sometimes, um, they and other people may have enough tissue, but they have had multiple surgeries on their abdomen or they've had hernias. So there, there are other reasons why the abdomen might not be a good option. Now, there are other areas of the body where we can borrow tissue to create a breast uh, without using an implant as well. And those areas include the inner thigh, the outer thigh, and then the gluteal region, the butt. Um, but those are very, very distant second choices to the abdomen. I would say the abdomen is the first, second, third, and fourth, fourth choice just because uh, the, the uh, amount of fat that's there, the very favorable anatomy that's well described, uh, and the just natural ability of that tissue to be shaped into breast tissue. The other areas don't have all of those advantages. The fat in the other areas tends to be less plentiful. The fat tends to be less uh, sculptable. Um, and, uh, and the blood vessels tend not to be quite as uh, predictable and reliable, which is why they remain distant second choices. Okay. So sometimes uh, when people don't have uh, a good uh, um, tissue donor site and they're not great candidates for using implants, for instance, if they have had previous radiation or if they're going to receive radiation, uh, a good option is to use a hybrid operation. And that is when we borrow tissue and we use an implant. And typically when we do that, we borrow tissue from the back and that's called a latissimus flap. So we borrow a muscle and we borrow the skin and fat on top of that muscle. And then we bring it to the front and we place that on top of a tissue expander and ultimately on top of an implant. And so that um, gets rid of some of that radiated tissue that tends not to play well with implants so that we can use an implant under it. So I would imagine that using your own tissue versus just an implant would be a longer recovery time. It is. So using your own tissue alone, if we go back to the abdominal operation, it's a longer operation, uh, it's a longer time in the hospital, and it's a longer recovery getting back to work or whatever it is that you want to get back to afterwards. And so that's, those are the disadvantages of using your own tissue. Other disadvantages include 
you have a donor site, you have a scar on your abdomen, and you can have complications with any of these operations, including wound healing problems. And sometimes you can develop a bulge in the abdomen, uh, which is not a hernia and doesn't generally require surgery, but can be a fullness, an unwanted fullness on one side of the abdomen or not. And that risk is about 5% per side. Um, the advantage of using tissue, however, is that uh, it doesn't have a lot of the disadvantages of implants. So um, while the risk of infection is there, uh, it, infection doesn't generally jeopardize the implant. It doesn't usually jeopardize the reconstruction as opposed to with implants. If you have an infection, it can jeopardize uh, having that implant in and you might have to remove it to clear the infection. That generally does not occur with your own tissue. Uh, other advantages of tissue are long-term advantages. Implants over time tend to accrue problems like scarring or rippling or uh, position changes or leak. And your own tissue does not accrue those kinds of changes over time. They tend to uh, be pretty durable. In fact, uh, one, uh, one famous plastic surgeon once said that, uh, that over time, implant reconstructions tend to guess, get less and less uh, good-looking, while uh, autologous tissue reconstructions tend to get better and better looking over time. Okay. Well, I, I am fascinated by all of this. I mean, I'm sure that when I came in for our first consultation that we talked about all of this stuff, um, but to hear it kind of again with a different state of mind, if you will, um, is, is, you know, fascinating and, and helpful. Um, so thanks for sharing all of that information. In terms of the sequencing of treatment, so, you know, somebody would go in for a single mastectomy or a bilateral mastectomy, and then would they, most people have reconstruction immediately, would it depend on their course of treatment that's being prescribed, how do you, how is all of that decided? Right, so it really requires tight communication with the breast oncology surgeon to, to find out uh, what other treatments might be necessary. So um, many people are able to undergo what we call immediate reconstruction, which is a reconstruction done at the same time as the mastectomy. <clears throat> and that's usually a first stage. There is very commonly uh, further stages, sometimes a single further stage, sometimes more than one uh, additional stage in order to give the best result and symmetry. And again, it's tailored to each individual patient. Um, but it's very common to do immediate reconstructions. However, there are circumstances in which uh, people would do better not having a reconstruction at the time of the mastectomy. And what would uh, those, those be? Yeah, those include uh, people that in whom it is known that they are going to require radiation afterwards. So if somebody needs radiation um, and you have a tissue expander in, and you're planning on putting an implant in, well, radiation, radiated tissue tends not to do very well with implants. It tends to get very tight. It tends to um, displace the implant uh, so it's not sitting in the right position. And it increases the complication rates that can occur uh, in the short term as well as in the long term. And so um, it is uh, a personal thing. Different surgeons do different things, but I personally try to avoid putting in implants in patients that have either previously had radiation or are expected to undergo radiation. I would prefer to do a delayed reconstruction in people that are expected to undergo radiation after the mastectomy. So that would be a reason to do a delayed reconstruction. 
And then there are some times where somebody's having a bilateral mastectomy. They aren't necessarily being considered for radiation at that time. And you do the immediate reconstruction right after, and then they have radiation or they're prescribed radiation because they um, clean margins can't be found um, or whatever, you know, the, the case may be. So what are some of the complications of having radiation following the implants? So the implant comes first and then the radiation. What are some of the complications that arise with that? Right. So that's a, that is a situation that sometimes happens is we, we have our best guess as to some, whether someone needs radiation afterwards, but there are many borderline situations and we don't know for sure until after the mastectomy and after uh, the pathologist has looked at the tissue and done lots and lots of uh, sophisticated tests on it that determine whether or not radiation is advised. And so in a situation where we did not think someone was going to need radiation and we put in a tissue expander, uh, and then after surgery, it was determined that they do need radiation, then there are different strategies that we can pursue. Uh, the first thing to do is we go ahead and inflate that tissue expander uh, so that we can get it inflated prior to the radiation because it will be very hard to inflate it after the radiation as the tissues are much tighter. Uh, at that point, the patient usually undergoes radiation and then we give them some time. And we have them come back after the many, many months after finishing the radiation to kind of see how the skin and the soft tissues have tolerated that radiation. Sometimes uh, they come back and, and the skin looks pretty good and it's not too terribly tight. And we talk to them uh, about proceeding with our original plan, which was to take out the tissue expander and put in an implant, understanding that there are still increased long-term risks of scarring, which we call capsular contracture, that can create asymmetry and create tightness and create <clears throat> and can create discomfort. And there's also increased risk of having short-term complications with surgery in that the incision line might not heal well and can even open up uh, or you can develop an infection. So even when the skin looks fine after radiation, there is still increased risk. However, that's a risk that we'll often take because um, if the skin looks pretty good, then there's a good chance that uh, a person can have a small operation and have a successful reconstruction with an implant. However, if they come in six months after radiation and that skin looks still looks very tight and looks very shiny <clears throat> and the tissue expander ha is being pushed in the upward direction and is no longer in the correct position, um, those are signs that someone's not going to do very well with an implant-based reconstruction and that if we went to place an implant, there would be a very high risk of opening up of incisions or infection and a very high risk of the breast just never really looking or feeling like a breast, which is the, the whole purpose of this entire endeavor. Even if we can get the implant in um, and without having an infection or a problem with the wound, if it doesn't look like a breast, in my opinion, it's not a very successful reconstruction. So in that sort of situation, we would then recommend falling back to one of those other options we discussed, using one's own tissue. If someone has enough abdominal tissue in that circumstance, we can then take out the tissue expander and replace it with their own tissue from their abdomen, and that's called a free flap, uh, sometimes it's called a DIEP or a free tram or a muscle sparing free tram. Those are all different flavors of the same operation from the abdomen that we discussed a little earlier. 
And if someone does not have enough tissue uh, in their abdomen to do that, then we can uh, proceed with the flap from the back, the latissimus flap, where we replace a lot of that heavily radiated skin and soft tissue in the front with healthy skin and soft tissue and muscle from the back, as well as a tissue expander or implant at that time. So that's the, that's the way that we mitigate some of the negative effects of radiation um, on the soft tissue uh, when we're still planning on using an implant. Okay. Yeah. And really creating more space. Absolutely. It sounds like. Um, Okay. So one of the things that we we haven't talked about that I would certainly like to address is the nipple reconstruction. And so in terms of that process, what does that look like for somebody? Sure. So, um, and we also didn't talk about nipple sparing mastectomy. So um, these days, uh, there are many women who are candidates for nipple sparing mastectomy in which no skin is taken during the mastectomy. And... uh, and they keep their own nipple and areola, although the nipple and areola is numb and it doesn't have any of the real sensitivity that it had prior and it doesn't have any of the function that it had prior. So if someone is a candidate for nipple sparing mastectomy, then of course no reconstruction would be needed. But I would say uh, the majority of people are not great candidates for nipple sparing mastectomy. And so uh, after reconstruction, uh, some of them do wish to pursue nipple reconstruction. And that comes in a couple different forms. Um, there is a surgical nipple reconstruction where we manipulate the skin in the location of where the nipple ought to be uh, in order to create a raised button, if you will. And uh, that's a small surgical procedure, often done under local anesthetic only. And after that heals, uh, the, sur- the nipple itself plus the surrounding circle of skin can be tattooed in order to um, replicate the, the pigment of the nipple and areola. So that's a, and there are many, many ways, many different surgical um, procedures that can create a nipple, and uh, people have different preferences and different uh, methods that work better. In you know, everybody has a different way that tends to work better in their hands. Although there are a few standard ones. So uh, that uh-huh, one on. of the things that I remember talking about when we were talking about nipple reconstruction, and I opted to not have that, um, was the fact that the nipple would really kind of stay hard for a period of time. Yeah, so it is different from a natural nipple in that it doesn't, it doesn't change with, um, with temperature, doesn't change with arousal. It kind of stays the same all the time. And some people don't like the idea of having a nipple that might show through their clothing um, uh, all the time. And, they, and some people like the idea of they're plagued by that problem when they have their own breasts and they don't want that problem. And so they embrace the ability not to have three-dimensional nipples. And those are excellent candidates for what we call 3D tattooing. So um, there's regular tattooing. Typical regular tattooing is when just a disc, a flat color was uh, tattooed in a circle in the area of the nipple reconstruction. However, three-dimensional tattooing is just a fancy name for um, having a more sophisticated tattoo that looks like uh, a picture of a nipple and areola. So it has the shading of it, uh, and it has the uh, details uh, of a nipple to make it look look much more realistic, even though there is no physical structure there. So many women prefer three-dimensional tattooing. And and, um, I would say over the last 10 years, the availability of high-quality 3D tattooing has really improved. It used to be uh, I would send people to 
to uh, Maryland uh, to one specific tattoo artist in order to have good tattoos done. But now um, I think you can find good tattoo artists that do this kind of work in most big cities. Good. <laughs> That's that's good. We definitely need more of those. I do remember though saying to you when we were talking about the nipple reconstruction that I didn't want to look like I was smuggling Tic Tacs. <laughs> <laughs> so I can certainly appreciate somebody that, uh, you know, opts to not have the reconstruction. <laughs> um, so we're kind of getting towards the end of this and I, I think that you've really shared a whole lot of great information. Um, one of the things that I do want to talk about, though, is that when you have these women who are coming in out of necessity, obviously there are very high emotions that go along with this. And so I would imagine, I know for myself, I probably cried more often in your office than anyone else's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, I, you know, lucky you. Um, but that that is truly the reality of it. Um, you know, I was very young and, and just in that that's just the space I was in. And so how do you handle that kind of situation where you have somebody who is coming into this and they're so emotionally charged and um, maybe they're anxious? How do, what are some of the things that you do to, you know, kind of help support them? Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think it, it, it can be a very emotional thing. And uh, typically it is a, a much more emotional uh, time when it is a woman coming in who just had a recent diagnosis and uh, has a lot on her plate, is trying to understand mastectomy, is trying to understand the recommendations for treatment, uh, is trying to understand her prognosis, her, whether there's a need for radiation or chemotherapy. So many things uh, are piled upon them. And then all of a sudden they're, they're talking about reconstruction where there are a whole, are a whole host of other decisions and details uh, that they have to consider. And it can be extremely overwhelming. Um, I would say that people are less uh, emotional when they pursue delayed reconstruction because they don't have as much on their plate. And they've really gotten through a lot of uh, uh, these decisions and now they can focus on one thing. Uh, so, you know, how do, we, how do we work with women that are coming in or in this situation? Um, I think we just have to talk to them, uh, just as you would talk to a family member and just explain that, you know, the most important thing is taking care of the cancer and you have uh, a great team that's working on that, that's dedicating their entire um, career to taking care of that kind of problem. And you're here because um, you, the main reason that people choose reconstruction is because they want to feel whole again. Um, and they want to have some sort of control in a situation where they are completely out of control, right? They have people making decisions for them about what's best for them. And they come to a plastic surgeon's office and all of a sudden they have some choices. Um, and I think it can be helpful to have choices and it gives a, a person a sense of control over a situation, at least a part of a situation where otherwise they have very, very little say in what's going on. Uh, but I think it can be also just too overwhelming because of all the details. And so I think it's important to figure out where a person is uh, in that space, as you said. So sometimes it's a woman is someone that does want to exert that control and drive how the reconstruction goes and wants to know the details and make decisions about the de informed decisions about the details. 
Uh, and then there are other women that they don't want extra decisions. They, they're overwhelmed already, and they want um, a little bit more of a hands-on approach from the surgeon where they say, what do you think I should have? And then you take a little bit more of a directed approach with them. I think that you would do best with tissue-based reconstruction for the following reasons. So I, I think you have to tailor your approach based on um, what, you're, what sense you're getting from each individual patient. I think that's great. And I have to tell you that it's, you know, it's been a really long time since I've been in your office, but I will, um, as you were talking about, you know, really sitting down and talking to them like their family, um, I, and I'm getting emotional right now thinking about it, but, um, I am teary eyed because I really did have that sense with, um, you and the people in your office and, um, Judy was, one of the most amazing nurses that I've ever had um, throughout my entire um, cancer journey where, you know, she knew immediately when I came into the office, I usually sat and that's when the tears began and she would just come over and she would just sit and she would hold my hand and, you know, do all of those things that really comforted me. And, you know, I really felt like she looked at me more like somebody that was a family member versus somebody who was, you know, a cancer patient um, or coming there to, to, you know, talk about reconstruction. So I, I love that you said that. And I, I think that that's, that really hits the nail on the head in terms of how to support somebody like that. Um, so the one last question that I, I have for you is, you know, there are a lot of plastic surgeons and people have the option to choose from so many. And, you know, thankfully for me, I, I, wasn't necessarily given an option of, you know, going out there and picking one. I had a medical team that was, you know, you were very much a part of that. And they said, we would like for you to go here. I don't know that that always happens. So what is something that people should be looking for when they're looking for a plastic surgeon? Right. And, and even more confusing is there, the, the, the word plastic surgeon is, um, is not a very specific word. It doesn't, you, you think you're getting someone that's fully trained, but you don't necessarily uh, get someone that's, uh, that's trained officially in plastic surgery because there are many other people that take the moniker of plastic surgeon. So I think the first most important thing is to check out the surgeon and see that they are a board certified uh, plastic surgeon from the American Board of Plastic Surgery. Uh, and it has to be those words. It has to be the American Board of Plastic Surgery. That is the the official uh, um, validated training system in our country for plastic surgeons. Uh, there are many other boards that are kind of fly-by-night. They just kind of make up words. Board of this, board of that, board of cosmetic surgeons, board of what have you. And it can be confusing because it has the word board and it has the word plastic surgery in there. But if it doesn't have American Board of Plastic Surgeons and only American Board of Plastic Surgeons, then uh, it is not the official training program of our country for plastic surgery. That's good uh, to after know. that, yeah. And I think that, you know, we get confused because we see plastic surgery on TV and we really... Um, I think TV has, has really muddied the waters in terms of what plastic surgery is. Uh, and so it's important to do your own research in order to, to learn that, that stuff. Um, but uh, other than that, I think that uh, when you meet with a plastic surgeon, it's good to ask them um, what kind of practice that they have, what kind of um, 
patients do they take care of uh, in high quantity? And do they do a lot of breast reconstruction? And if you have a particular type of breast reconstruction that you're interested in, it's important to ask how often do you do that type of breast reconstruction? Because study after study has shown, not just in plastic surgery, but in uh, most types of surgery, that the higher volume surgeons in a particular type of surgery, and it's usually we're talking about complex surgeries, uh, the better the results are. And just as important, the more of that type of operation that takes place in a certain hospital, the better the results are. So, so more volume per surgeon and more volume per hospital because a surgeon can't, uh, operate, can't function alone and they need all the support of a well-trained hospital and staff and nurses uh, and techs and uh, all sorts of people in that hospital that uh, make sure that, that people recover well after surgery. That's great information. And then the other thing that I would add on to that, and I know for me, um, I personally could not look at it, but I know that you do offer a book of work that you have done on, um, you know, breast cancer survivors and, and other people so that people, you know, women that are coming in there and they want to be able to take a look and see, you know, recognizing that obviously, you know, there are many, many factors that are going to determine the outcome of plastic surgery um, and reconstruction, that it's just a, a nice tool to have where somebody can take a look at those and um, just kind of get a sense of, of, you know, what might potentially be the outcome. Right. I think it's nice to have visual representations of what reconstruction looks like uh, through the various different techniques, taking into consideration that everybody's different and, you know, what you see in a book on implant reconstruction may not represent exactly what you're going to get because your anatomy is different from what you see in a book. Right. And I, sure. I would also like to mention that, you know, a lot of people uh, look online to, to find out what breast reconstruction looks like. And I just want to remind everyone that what people see online are going to fall into one of two categories. It's going to be either the absolute best results that surgeons have, uh, that they are marketing and advertising, or they're absolute worst disasters that people put online just to show the risks involved. And so yes. usually the results that uh, a patient, any, any individual patient gets is probably going to be somewhere in between, hopefully towards the better. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you so much for being a part of this and sharing all of that information and knowledge. I really believe that that will be um, helpful for our listeners. And, um, you know, again, I, I just appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to spend it talking to us. Well, it was my absolute pleasure to do it. I'm always happy to talk about this, this topic, which of course, you know, uh, it's a lot of what I do and I, I really want to advance the art and science of it. And I want to make it easier for people to make these decisions and decide whether it's something that they, that they want to go through. Well, thank you. So thank you very much for having me. For sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.